So I'm here with Peter Jandapu, um, the director of Land of the Enlightened. And I think it's, uh, congratulations on it. And um, I think it's one of the most interesting films I've seen all year. Um, for those who are unaware, could you tell us a little about the story? It's a story about um, Afghanistan, the war today in Afghanistan, basically, but told through the Afghan kids' eyes, basically. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it's, it's based on a story of uh, a little boy who wants to become the king of Afghanistan and marry the most beautiful princess in Afghanistan after the Americans are going to leave his country. Uh, so it's a kind of a hybrid film between you know documentary and fiction, and especially the fiction part is the dream of those kids. Mm. Uh, so we stayed a long time embedded with the American army, visualizing the world, uh, the, the the war, and and you know the fight between them and the Taliban. But on the other hand, I wanted to make that story of that boy who wants to become a king, and uh, so it's those two worlds will come together. Uh, before making the film, you were a photographer in Afghanistan. What made you suddenly realize that you wanted to tell the story and, um, in this particular way, which is like a mix of docudrama and fiction? Mm-hmm. It's, uh, you know, to be, to be clear, um, I'm not a photographer. I study cinema, oh, okay. uh, classical film cinema. Um, but I started exploring Afghanistan with a photo camera because uh, I wanted to know Afghanistan in the first place after I graduated from uh, the film school. And not really having the idea to, to make a film there, but I was just traveling around in Central Asia. And I did um, a deal with lots of humanitarian organizations um, that I was actually going to work for them for free as a photographer, making photo stories about their projects uh, all over Afghanistan. And at, as a return, they would give me like access to everything I needed to... Uh, subjects, but also my need for having like translators, drivers, accommodation, and, and all that stuff. And during this uh, first two years, while working as a photographer, I discovered many kids who were surviving in the war in Afghanistan and also had lots of fantasies about their future. And I was also embedded for the first time with the American Army at that time for uh, Vice magazine, mm-hmm. and then. After two years, when I returned back to Belgium, I started writing the first draft of a script that I said, yeah, it might be very interesting to, to tell the war in Afghanistan uh, by the Afghan kids. And uh, that was actually the beginning of, of, of you know, a long project. Yeah, because um, I wouldn't exactly classify it as a war movie. I think it's more of an ethnographic documentary where you're getting a portrayal of these people you don't typically see in cinema. It kind of reminded me of... Um, Robert J. Fardy's work on Man of Iron and stuff instead of um, now you've got these um, Afghani child soldiers. Um, how did you approach these children to be in your movie and what were they like to work with? Yeah, I think you're right. It's not, it's not a war movie. Um, again, it's, it's a story of those kids in Afghanistan and those kids, you know, they live in a war. So, of course, the war needed to be a context to explain what was going on in Afghanistan. Um, you know, I, how I was getting in touch with those kids was basically, you know, I wanted to, we discovered that lots of those things that they were doing in daily life to survive, for example, dealing with opium, uh, the traffic of arms, gemstones, scrap metal, um, you know, it was like a kind of a smuggling traject that was going from Pakistan, uh, from Afghanistan into Pakistan. And uh, in this smuggling, lots of kids were involved. So I, we told basically in a 
you know, underlaying storyline, the smuggling of those weapons and gemstones towards Pakistan, how kids are involved in that, and then in a third layer, their dreams and their fantasies. So, um, you know, it was a long process getting along with those kids, and especially to earn their trust, to not only earn their trust, but also trust the communities and the village elders and the mullahs and the, the commanders, the warlords, uh, sometimes Taliban. So I needed to understand the culture in the very first place and to speak the language. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was also one of the reasons why this film took like years and years. Seven years, wasn't it? Yeah, eight years. Eight years, wasn't it? So, um, yeah, it was, was, um, was kind of you know a challenging challenging project it was not only filming but many more things came along there's a lot of um stunning and startling imagery in the movie like we see children extracting explosives from soviet landmines and it's a great reminder that there's always been a war in afghanistan and like this is all these children know that said they may be used to it but did you and your crew ever feel in danger when you're shooting these children holding grenades or um, working in these like horrible conditions and mines and stuff. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, after all these years when you live in Afghanistan, you you become an Afghan. You know, basically. So you you start like thinking as them. You you get so much absorbed in their culture because I was you know long times away from home and and whenever you speak the language, you get access into their daily life. So you accept also the danger. It's rather when you return back home and you look everything from a distance and you say, wow, we were sometimes doing crazy stuff. There, <laughs> you know, um, Specifically about those landmines and stuff, you know, as a director, you know, I was kind of responsible with my crew. I knew that it was totally crazy to walk inside a minefield with a crew. So what we did was those kids were doing in daily life, they were getting out these mines um, but what we did was we were putting disarmed mines again in the ground and just saying to those kids, do the thing that you do in daily mm -hmm. life. So we followed them with a camera uh, and you saw them yeah, like they did in the film and plenty of kids with, without arms and legs. But, you know, I remember at that point during that specific scene, for example, they said, oh, yeah, we had some more mines. Maybe we can just like put some mines everywhere, you know. But of course, this, those mines were not disarmed, so they're like putting, yeah. Like, yeah, like this kind of shells and stuff everywhere. So at some point, it became like a total mix what is now armed and disarmed. And like imagine know, the crew were just yeah. like bracing themselves. Yeah. So uh, luckily, nothing severe happened, but um, sometimes it was kind of tricky. Yes. Yeah, um, the kids have a very natural feeling it feels very realistic did it take a while to make them act in a way where they're not playing for the camera or like just not referencing the camera that they're just going about their daily activities sure um, but you have to understand that these kids never understood what we did they never understood that we were making a film and the basic reason for that was because there was no electricity in their place so they never saw television, they never saw just like a video on a mobile phone, they never saw cinema. So, and then moreover, we were filming on a film camera with film rolls, you know, not video or like digital. Yeah, Super 16. Super 16. So at the end of the day, we were not able to show them the rushes because we were also shooting without video assist just because of problems with electricity and stuff. So, you know, they thought it was like a game that we were doing and that this camera was 
like a tool that we needed for something, you know. Um, and that was as well a big challenge for us because I knew those kids were just like kids coming from the mountains. Those were non-actors. So I could not tell to them like, okay, now you're going to walk from A to B and then you're going to look to the camera, you're going to say this or that. They would just block. So what we did was we created lots of space around them. I mean, we tried to capture them in their daily life, but at the same time, I was trying to implement my story on them. So it was kind of a game, like kind of, I was rather asking them questions, like imagine that you're gonna become the king of Afghanistan, what you're gonna do? And he was like, Golam Nasir was saying, oh, I'm gonna get my boys, I'm gonna get my Kalashnikovs, we're just gonna grab the palace. And I was like, okay, just show me, <laughs> you know? And that's, that's how we worked with them, constantly in a very organic, playing-wise way of, of filming. There's also, you see shots from the American soldier's perspective, and a lot of it uh, reminded me a little bit, a lot more realistic, but of Jarhead in the sense that it kind of captured the mundanity of war between fighting, which I don't think many films have done, which is unique to yours. But, um, and we've talked about Robert J. Flaherty. Were there any uh, big influences that you think you brought to the film? No, because I never saw Jarhead. Oh, really? <laughs> no, okay. Uh, I know the film and I know some parts of it, but I never saw the complete film. So, uh, no, I mean, like, the. You know, we, we stayed months and months with the American army and basically what you see in the film about the American army is just capturing reality. You know, mm -hmm. we, we, don't, we did not even ask them, can you do something like this or that? It was just like, you know, what they were, I mean, just captating, basically. Uh, so you see the fights, you see the boredom, you see, and that, that was it. You know. Yeah, because it's such a strange um, juxtaposition because you see them with these like crazy uh, machine guns that they're shooting, and then you just see them like you know, after that just like strumming away on the guitars. <laughs> yeah, it was like you have to know that it was like ten percent fighting and ninety percent was just doing nothing and boredom. You know, so there was plenty of stuff to film from those guitars and just like these guys who were saying stupid things about what was going to happen about I mean, not stupid things very interesting but this brass and very f fairy tale wise stories you know so it was daily business you've spoken about how while you were making the film you were attacked by the Taliban and um, could you explain exactly what happened it sounds uh, extraordinary yeah yeah it's, it's, it's a long story I just told to your colleague uh, here um, you know, it's a very long story to explain you in detail, but what happened, uh, short told, is that after we filmed in the Lapis Lazuli gemstone mine, we were heading back to, uh, to Kabul and this community where we was like living close by this gemstone mine, they were related to Taliban and, um, you know, basically they put an ambush uh, on the way back to Kabul and we were with two cars crossing at some point a very high mountain pass and the first car with the Afghan crew got stopped by a checkpoint of Taliban. Uh, luckily, this, the Taliban didn't see the second car, so they thought they were alone. Uh, they attacked them, uh, they got them out of the car, they started knocking on them with rocks and, and the butts of Kalashnikovs and, and at, uh, then they put them at gunpoint and then they asked them to destroy all the equipment, everything, all lenses, cameras, laptops, hard drives. Luckily, the rushes from the shoot were in the second car, so oh. they did not destroy them. Uh, and those were the rushes that are still in the film. 
and then uh, they wanted to kill them finally but then you know it was the first day of uh, after Eid after Ramadan so so they said we are not gonna kill you it's the present of God that we are not gonna kill you um, and then I was I got involved as well because I gave like first aid to to the crew. I walked up there on the mountain pass to to check out the situation, and then uh, a car came on the top of the mountain pass, saw us, and we thought that was the Taliban who reorganized them, and uh, you know maybe they saw me and they wanted to kidnap me now together with the crew. I, I don't know what their plans were, but apparently after that it turned out it was police. But the police at that time thought that we were Taliban around our car. So they start like firing at us with machine guns. Luckily from a, a large distance. So uh, nobody got uh, got died or something. But uh, it was lots of people got injured. <laughs> yeah, it got injured. Mm. And then everything became clear that, you know, they were not Taliban. We were not Taliban. And then there were police. And then... We brought the wounded people to a hospital, but you know the production said, "Okay, we're gonna stop here," because mm -hmm. I mean, the insurance was not covering European crew members anymore. A lot of people wanted to close down the project, but then you know I said, "It's my film. It's my first film. I want to end this correctly, and I want to make a nice film. I want to make good film." Mm -hmm. So um, even I, I spent so many years at that time uh, in Afghanistan that I didn't want to get you know, uh, how to say, um, give it up like this. But then I decided, you know, the production gave me another chance. They said, okay, you want to finish that film, uh, all right, but uh, you have to come back to Afghanistan alone and without Europeans. So then um, I needed to train Afghans to become audiovisual assistants. So it was a long process because, you know, Lots of those Afghans, they, you know, there is no cinema in Afghanistan. It's a country already 40 years in war, so cinema is not at all a priority. Uh, so it was very difficult to make them aware about, you know, how to, to deal with lenses, with sound gear, with whatever kind of equipment. Um, and then finally, you know, we decided also to to adopt to the very unpredictable situation in, in Afghanistan. So... We try to be flexible as possible with many plans, a lot of time, and having a very small crew which could be like operating in any kind of circumstances, but also with constantly rotating crew members that nobody really know, okay, who is now working with this foreigner, mm. where they're heading to, what they're going to shoot, uh, and everything became as impredictable as Afghanistan, mm. and um, impredictable. And um, and that's basically how we shot like I think eighty percent of the film. Because there's no, you don't sense that one half is made by professionals and the other part isn't. Like it, it seems seamless in the film. Yeah, I mean, like I shot a film myself. Uh, yeah. I did a camera, but you know the sound was done by assistants. Uh, the, the 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 camera, the lenses and stuff. Uh, you know, it was lots of technical stuff that we needed assistance for. Also, like taking care about the animals, taking care about food. Uh, logistical part was a huge thing, like to bring the exposed rolls of film back to the embassy and from the embassy back to Belgium. Uh, uh, you know, supplies, fuel generators, technical problems, uh, cars. Yeah, it was more, that was more important, I think, than the technical crew itself. Mm -hmm.
So you've got, you've got the uh, tile van, and then you were talking about you've got electrical shortages. Um, and the film looks fantastic, and it's shot on Super 16. Well, what was the reason for choosing this kind of impractical way of shooting, as of the, you know, most films are shot on digital or 35mm? Mm. Because even it seemed, it sounds impractical, uh, but it was the most practical way in Afghanistan because there is no electricity. And um, if you want to shoot digital nowadays in Afghanistan, I mean, you need like plenty of batteries for a digital camera, but not only batteries, but you need also a laptop, you need hard drives, not you true. need backups, you need like, uh, I don't know, it's consuming in generally much more electricity than just a simple film camera. But a film camera, you know, you need like to have one spare battery, like a huge, you know, fully charged battery, and you can shoot like 10 rolls of film. And you have to keep the battery warm, and then you have to make sure that you have a solar panel or whatever to charge that battery again. And um, also a film camera was much more reliable in those very extreme conditions. Because you have to understand in the winter it was minus 25, in summer it was like 45. So those digital cameras with all the dust and, and you know, this sensible sensors, uh, yeah, it was much more reliable to shoot on yeah, film. Like one tiny crack can like, ruin the way yeah, a, camera, a digital mean, camera works. Sure. Uh, I remember we, uh, we brought some 5D cameras with us uh, just to shoot time lapses. And I remember one time, you know, we just were on the eyes of a frozen river. The camera, we fell down, poof, the camera was in thousand pieces. Gone, you know. How many times I counted that I fell down with this big Ari camera? It's like, okay, it's very heavy, it's very brute, it's massive, it's it's not easy to work with, but I fell like 25 times on the ice, and this camera just continued working yeah. like fluently. It's like a, the old Nokia phones, like you can drop them and they break, but if you drop an iPhone, it like cracks immediately. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's also still a heritage of Afghanistan that I still have this phone. <laughs> and you know, you drop it, and it, it, this, look, look, you see yeah. and this the battery comes crack. out yeah and no. it's it's you put it in, in each other again and it's it, it continues working it's it's yeah um so i'll finish up just um what, what are you thinking of doing next what's your next pro is it, are you going to do another thing in afghanistan or a more conventional <laughs> movie <laughs> no um not afghanistan definitely not because i think uh there is much more in the world than only afghanistan um what I can say about next, um, it, it, it's 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 um, how to say, um, it's a long story how to explain. But we are advancing already. We are in a kind of a stage that, uh, uh, in in not in, in I mean in full writing uh, script writing uh, stage, but it's it's a story. I can tell you already this. It's a story about uh, two brothers in uh, West Ukraine in the Carpathian mountains and they grew up like as Tsigan, like as, uh, you know, you know, Tsigan, right? Gypsies. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the middle of the woods, in nature, they are very good hunters um, and they are very close with each other. They believe in, you know, in paganism, you know, like nature gods and, and uh, really very, very close to the nature elements. And at some point, uh, the war breaks out in eastern Ukraine. Um, and the army start mobilizing them uh, and like yeah, mobilizing people from all over Ukraine and they have to join the army and because um, they are very good hunters become snipers and they are sent to the war and um, they 
break from each other because of the war. It's actually the war which is splitting them, and one brother die, dies, and one brother returns home back to the the woods and the mountains in the Carpathians. Mm. But it's it's based on a true story in reality in Ukraine, but it's also based on a book uh, which is written uh, by Joseph Boyd, a Canadian writer, um, who wrote a book, Three Day Road. Uh, okay. It's a book about two Indian brothers, but from you know Native uh, Canadians, who are sent to the First World War. And it's, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's identically the same story, but 100 years later. So, but we are in fully development and, and I mean like pre-production. So yeah. it's uh, it's gonna be a fiction film, but based on on a realistic story. Okay. Well, I heard everyone to go see uh, Land of the Enlightened. It came out today, didn't it? In Ireland. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Um, I wish you every success with it. Uh, thank you for being with us. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Thank you. All right.